All right, if you have a Bible from the coffee house, we're going to be on page 268. 268, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 13. 2 Samuel 13. Anybody recognize this quote? Life is pain, Highness. It's selling something, yes. It's a quote from The Princess Bride. And I think this is actually one of those kind of true-to-life quotes that shows up in Hollywood, and it's like, yes, yes, it is. I was reading one of my favorite psychologists, Dan Allender. He says, to live is to hurt. Henry Nowen, in his book, The Wounded Healer, he says, nobody escapes being wounded. There's a lot of different ways to be wounded, of course. There's at least two. Wounds... Kind of trauma theorists say, trauma can be something that happens to you or it can be something that didn't happen to you. Does that make sense? It can be something that was disruptive or it can be something that you needed or wanted or deserved and you didn't get. So it's when you experience something you didn't deserve or you didn't experience something that you did deserve. Both lead to wounding. But then what happens with our wounds? And that's what we're going to explore today. There's just really going to be three movements today, the way of wounding, the way of healing, and then the wounded healer. The way of wounding, the way of healing, and then the wounded healer. I shared on Slack, if you're new to Oikos, we have a Slack channel where there's messages and groups and stuff like that. We can't wait to add you to our Slack channel. Um, but I shared that I was feeling kind of weighted down by this message. I'm, I was very much looking forward to preaching this, still am. But there's a weight to it because of the text that I'm preaching. I'm, I'm preaching 2 Samuel 13, which if you just see the heading, it's about Amnon and his rape of Tamar. And you may be coming in just kind of ready to visit a new church or seeing some family. Or, and you're like, I did not sign up for this today. You know, it's a little heavier than normal. But I'm especially mindful of the people who have experienced sexual abuse or sexual assault or rape. And so, Stella, would you raise your hand? And David Hall, would you raise your hand? I've just kind of talked to these people. They're, they're wonderful people to sit and listen and to talk to. And if at any point today you just need somebody to kind of help you de-escalate, come find Stella or David. Not for like an official session or anything like that, even though Stella is a licensed counselor. And pursuing licensed counselor. <laughs> great. Yeah, Stella is still going to be a wonderful conversation partner. It's just to sit, they'll listen, and then they'll kind of help you process what's happening today. Um, even though, obviously, processing some of what has already happened is going to take some more work. Um, there's a weight to it. I was listening to Jen Pollock Michelle. She was on a podcast that I listened to. And she says, I've been in church all my life. Yeah, I went to every Sunday, you know, all the classes. Everything that ever happens at church, I was at for my entire life. And she says, she asked this question, why don't preachers preach the rape texts? I've, never, I've been in church all my life. I've been in every class. I've been in every sermon. I've never heard a preacher preach the rape text. That was a little stunning to just hear kind of the bluntness of that question. But it was also pretty convicting because I haven't ever preached one of the rape texts. And I say one of because it's not like there's just one. Scripture actually has a lot of stories of sexual abuse and sexual assault. Some of these will be familiar to you. You remember the first one is Abram and Hagar. You see lots 
daughters. You see Dinah, Tamar, our text today, Joseph and Potiphar's wife, um, Bathsheba, the Levite's concubine. But actually what scripture does with these texts is it actually uses this almost like a weaving technique that when you see one, there's allusions and quotations and references, almost like hyperlinks that reference some of the other ones. They're all woven together into something really thick and robust. You see, Scripture has something to say about wounding. That's our primary lens today. But Scripture also has something to say specifically about the wounding of sexual abuse. And as heavy as it is, and as difficult as it is to kind of talk about it in a group, I think we deserve to hear some of the lens of Scripture on it. Now, this isn't the final word. There's a lot of other texts, there's a lot of other time, Lord willing, that we can get to those things. This would just be a way to kind of explore the way of wounding. So let's, let's get into this text in 2 Samuel chapter 13, 268, if you have the Coffee House Bible. We're going to walk through a lot of text, and there's going to be a few words highlighted on screen. I'm going to kind of interact, but I'm going to be moving pretty quickly because of how much we're, we're covering today. The chapter begins with this line, in the course of time. Now, in the course of time, it's just, it's kind of a reference to say, like, in some time after that, this happened. Notice it didn't happen immediately after what happened in chapter 12. Look at chapter 12, what was going on. Chapter 12, the chapter immediately before this, is about the sin of David with Bathsheba, and then the cover-up, and then the confrontation. So what the narrator doing, is doing, what Second Samuel, the author, is doing, is he's putting this story here, even though it didn't chronologically happen after, he's putting it right here for the sake of comparison. He wants us to read this story in light of the story of David's own rape of Bathsheba and the sexual assault that happened there. He's, he's intentionally putting it here for the sake of comparison. Uh, Bill Arnold, he's a commentator, kind of, focuses in on narrative structures. He says, nothing in 2 Samuel will be the same after David's sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. Everything changes. It's promises, promises, promises. David, I'm going I'm to bless you. Your son's going to reign forever and ever and ever. And then the moment this happens, everything changes. It's, there's something introduced into the story that changes everything forever. These stories are meant to be a pair, meant to be kind of reviewed together. And so there's going to be a lot of allusions back and forth. But then he says, in the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. You see the recurring word, son of David. In Hebrew literature, when you see a phrase re recur or repeat, you should pay attention to it. And here we just see son of David, son of David. We're supposed to be reading. One commentator, she says this. Uh, she says they are like chips off the old block. Son of David, son of David. These guys look just like David. Just as David saw a beautiful woman and he took her, his son is about to do the exact same thing. Just as he murdered a man to cover up a sin, his son is about to do the same thing. It goes on in verse 2, Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. This is what we call lovesick. She was a virgin and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now, it was against the law in Israel for a man to be with a virgin who, it was actually against the law to be with any woman that you weren't married to. But especially for the royal family, there was something very important here. He felt powerless. 
for this desire, this obsession, as the NIV puts it. But Amnon had an advisor, and if you have the ESV, it may call him a friend. It's his cousin. He had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shimeah, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. Shrewd reminds me of that serpent that shows up in Genesis chapter 3, who was more crafty, more shrewd than all of the other creatures, and he had something to twist. Now, I'm struck by the place of friendships when it comes to sexual sin. I was looking at some really startling uh, research that was done by Rose McDermott of Brown University, and she asked the question, is divorce contagious? Is divorce contagious? She says, when you treat divorce from the perspective of an epidemic, it starts to really resemble like an epidemiology. She says, the contagion of divorce can spread through a social network like a rumor affecting friends up to two degrees removed. These advisors, these friends, they often start voicing things that create new possibilities in friend groups. She says, if, if you have a friend, a close friend who is divorced, your likelihood of divorce goes up by 75%. If you have a friend of a friend, your likelihood of divorce goes up by 33%. There is something that happens when we start listening to friends and advisors when it comes to sexual integrity instead of the Lord. There's there's a warning here. And so this shrewd man doesn't have an interest the ways of God, but has an interest really the self-satisfaction of Amnon. And so he asked Amnon, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? He can tell that this guy is lovesick. He's looking haggard. He's not, he's just showing everybody how lovesick he is. And so Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Now, do you see kind of the the network of family and relationships that are happening in the story? It's a cousin telling a, a man that his brother Absalom's sister, already there's this tapestry that something isn't right because David has already introduced sin into this story. The the biblical view of marriage is one man and one woman united for life, one flesh. And so when people go a different way, it has this ripple effects. And here we're experiencing some of the ripple effects of what was going on in David's marital relationships. Because he had more than one woman, more than one wife, Now there's a complexity to the tapestry underneath a story. But you see the repetition of the words, my sister, my brother, my sister, my brother. That's on purpose. The narrator is going to use those words 12 times in this short section. 12 times. He wants you to draw your focus. Remember I said if it repeats a word, it's important. When he repeats a a word 12 times, it's really important. This is an outrageous thing that's about to happen. He has an idea, though. He said, go to bed and pretend to be ill. Pretend you, you're lovesick, so just pretend to be ill. And Jonadab, he said that. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so that I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. I, I love Joyce Baldwin on this. She says, you know, it's really childish for a grown man to act like this. And any mother among us wouldn't have allowed it. But there's something that It happens in this story that David has become so predictable that even the cousin can say, I I know what your dad's going to do when he gets involved in some of this. Take a look at how the story plays out. 
So Amnon, he went and he lay down pretending to be ill. And when the king came to see him, do you remember the repeating phrases? When the king comes to see you, when the king comes to see him, Amnon said, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make me some special bread in my sight that I may eat it from her hand. So David sent word to Tamar at the palace, go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So go to the house and David, he gets involved in this story. Uh, Robert Alter, he has this translation of the Bible, of the Old Testament, that's it's just really riveting with some commentary. And in that book, Alter says, David, who sinned through lust, inadvertently acts as Amnon's pimp for his own daughter. He inadvertently acts as Amnon's pimp for his own daughter. So David has become so predictable at this. I was... I, I quote way too many comedians, I'm aware of that, but can you spare one more? There's this comedic band called The Flight of the Concords, and they have a song called Father and Son. And it's about a son who is singing with his dad about how much he loves him, only to really start singing about his stepdad that he seems to love a lot more. He says, uh, Trevor brought me a, band, a brand new bike. Trevor lets me watch anything I like, eat ice cream on weekday nights. He says, I'm not sad because I've got two dads. You see, sometimes in, in families, and particularly I think in divorced families, the child can learn that there are some perks to the brokenness. That in the predictability and patterns of our parents, I mean, I did this all the time. We knew exactly who to go to if we wanted to go over to a friend's house. If we wanted to go to dinner, if we wanted that little extra something, it sure wasn't going to my mom. And we knew which of the siblings to send to ask. And it wasn't me. I wasn't going to get it. Um, the middle brother, uh, bless him, um, he may come up later in the story also. Do uh, you know what I mean? Where our parents can become predictable in ways that we kind of learn them. And then we play them to our advantage in some ways. That's what's happening here in the story that David's sins have become so predictable that they know exactly how to play him. And so David steps in, inadvertently becoming the pimp for his own daughter. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 is just kind of, this is Hebrew narrative at its, at its finest. Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. There's a wordplay going on with lying down in bed throughout the whole chapter. She took some dough kneaded it, made the bread in his sight, and baked it. Then she took the pan, and she served him the bread, but he refused to eat. One of the striking things about the story is that the actual sexual assault just doesn't even get a description. It's just, it's just one word, and it's over. But, so why is he slowing down and talking about all this bread making? Why do we need to know that she was kneading the dough and that she... She was just kind of working in the kitchen to serve this guy. All of this is meant to kind of slow down the story and to highlight her innocence. Her, she's totally unsuspecting about what's about to happen. She's only there because someone asked her to be, and she's only there to serve. It focuses on her innocence, but also it really kind of raises how foreboding this scene is. More time is spent on the cakes and the assault itself. And so it, it really intensifies the betrayal that's about to happen. 
what Amnon does in verse 9. He says, send everyone out of here. Now, this is one of those interesting hyperlinks that's meant for comparison. This is a direct quotation of another man who says, send everyone out of here. And it's the story of Joseph. Now, if you're new to church, and I'm, I'm kind of bouncing around too much, uh, I apologize. But there, there's this story that happened in the book of Genesis where Joseph, he's been betrayed by his brothers. And this is the moment where he says this, send everyone out of here, where he's actually reconciling with his brothers. His sibling group is getting back together, and he wants to send out the Egyptian servants, so he says, send everyone out. But that line is quoted in order for us to see that the exact opposite is happening here. Instead of a story about reconciling siblings, this is the story of a sexual assault on siblings. This is the wicked inversion. And so he says... Everyone left him, Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food out here into my bedroom so that I may eat it from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she'd prepared and brought it to her brother, Amnon, in his bedroom. And we should, when she took it to, to him to eat, he grabbed her. This is a really strong verb in Hebrew. It just means he overpowered her. Come to bed with me, my sister. My sister. No, my brother. She reminds him. She says, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. There's another story. I told you some of the sexual assault stories are kind of woven together. There's another story that shows up in Judges chapter 19. In Judges 19, there's a Levite who has a concubine who is ravaged and abused all night to the point of death. It is one of the most disturbing stories imaginable and certainly in scripture. But she pleads with her abusers in that story and she says, no, my brothers, do not do this wicked thing. Just like Tamar is saying, she's saying it. Robert Alter, he says, that story ended in the woman being gang raped to death an act that led to bloody civil war, just as Tamar's rape will lead to fratricide, the murder of her brother, and eventually rebellion and civil war. She pleads, what about me? Think, think of me. What's going to happen to a woman from my position who experienced Look what you will do to me. This will not Go away from me. But what about you? You're in, in line to be king. Think of you. Think of me. Don't do this outrageous thing. You'll be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Speak to the king. He won't keep me from being married to you. She's, she's willing to try anything just to get out of this room. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said, 
sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. This may be confusing. Why would this be even more wrong? In the legal code in the people of Israel, women who were victims of sexual assault were actually, they had some kind of financial protections built in. And the protection was marriage. That if you raped a virgin woman, you were legally bound to marry her. And it wasn't that it was good or redemptive. It was that she needed somebody to financially sponsor her, to protect her. This was the social safety net for victims. And he was even taking that away, which meant that she had no one and no prospects. This story, I mean, she's the princess. And in fact, it, it draws this attention to her. He he called his personal servant and he said, get this woman out of my sight. No longer is she a named woman. No longer is she the princess of the land. Get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. And so the servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And she was wearing an ornate robe. There's one other place in scripture where this phrase, ornate robe, is used. It's the story of Joseph. This is Joseph's coat of many colors. This is the technicolor dream coat. And here we have this, this robe that she is favored, dignified, beautiful, important. She's a princess. But just like Joseph, the robe is ripped and torn and bloodied. This was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore, and Tamar put ashes on her head, and she tore the or ornate robe, and she was wearing. She put her hands on her head, and... Joyce Baldwin, she says, that sign of hands on your head in reliefs at the time, it seems to always be there with bondage. She feels like she's trapped and she's in slavery, that she's been made to be in bondage. She was weeping aloud as she went, and her brother Absalom said to her, has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. This is pretty common technique for people who experience wounding. They then experience somebody minimizing the wounding. They experience the silencing. He did not listen to her. He did not listen to her. Be quiet. And then the minimization, don't take this thing to heart. Of course, for Absalom, it's, it's not like he didn't take it to heart as the story goes on. In reality, Absalom knew the gravity of this wound, and so he would seek vengeance. He took her in, and she lived with him, her brother Absalom's house, as a desolate, desolate woman. When King David heard all this, he was furious. But he did nothing. One commentary says, because of his sin with Bathsheba, David had lost his moral courage and clarity of judgment. Joyce Baldwin, again, she says, his own bad example would inhibit any protest against Amnon. You see, there's only so many times you can say, do as I do, not as, do as I say, not as I do. It's this recurring cycle where just like Dinah, who was raped, and Jacob, her father, did nothing. Her brothers rose up and took vengeance. So the same thing is going to happen here. What happens 
And this is where I'll just really speed up. And at the end of 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17, if you just kind of read the next chunk of this narrative, is that this wound festers. You know what I mean by a festering wound? The other day, Jason Heckendorf called me. Our friend Bobby, um, who at the time was living behind Starbucks, um, he, he called Jason, and Jason's wife, Rose, suggested, shall we say, that uh, he have someone to go with him. He said, I need a ride to the hospital. So Jason, he came and picked me up, and we were like, what is Bobby, what's going on with Bobby tonight? And we get there, and he's sitting on a curb, and he has this wound. Uh, he had scraped his knee, but then he had cleaned it out with something that was not clean at all. And can I just say, that wound had festered. The, I mean, it was swollen, and it was red, and it was just filling up his leg. Uh, thankfully, Jason took him to the hospital. He was in the hospital about a week. He had surgery. All of the infection was taken care of, and something the Lord did something that night, I think, that really began to soften Bobby's heart in other ways. But you know what I mean by a wound that festers? It gets worse. It spreads. The infection is worse than the initial thing. And this wound, as awful as it was, festers. The, the next scene is where Absalom invites all his brothers to a big party. Amnon gets drunk enough that finally he just strikes him dead. He murders his brother. After that, he has to be on the run. But then he knows, Dad didn't do anything to Amnon. He's not going to do anything to me. So he shows back up to Jerusalem. And sure enough... He reconciles with his father. He's so embarrassed at his father, he says, you're not fit to be king. And so he raises up an army for himself. He says, I'm going to be the true king. And he found an advisor, Ahithophel. And Ahithophel, who happens to be the grandfather of Bathsheba, he says, I've got some ideas for what you can do if you want to be king. Try going to that rooftop and sleeping with all of his women, just like David had done to his granddaughter Bathsheba. And so he does. And then Ahithophel says, give me 12,000 men. That's all I need. And I'm just going to go kill the one man, David. And then Absalom may not know, but he is eventually killed. He's hanged in a tree and then he's stabbed by David's advisors. And then the land breaks out into civil war. All of this happens because of a wound that festered. All of this happened because of because of something that David did that led to something that Amnon did, that led to something that Absalom did, that led to something that Ahithophel did, that led to something that the whole nation did. And if you feel like this is a stretch, this is exactly how Hebrew commentators, they say that this narrative is structured. Bill Arnold, again, he says the overall structure of the book, he says we're to understand that all of this is the result of David's sin in the matter of Bathsheba and Uriah. It's, it's a spillover. It's, it's the ripple effect. It doesn't matter how big the stone is, but the splash always makes a ripple. Here, Bill Arnold said, he reaps what he has sown in chapters 10 through 12, made worse by his inability to deal with his children's crimes in 13 and 14. So he says, there's this subtle implication that draws a causal connection between his own sins and the sins of his family. Another commentator he is reaping publicly through his family the fruit of his cloistered sin. Do you see what wounds do in this narrative? The wounds of one man spill over from generation to generation, from one person to a group of people to a nation of people. 
Alistair Roberts, he says, I found that the more you read the text in a literary way, the more significance these events actually emerges. You're recognizing how it's connected to this wrong over here, this consequence over here. It's connected to the tensions between these characters or something else that appears down the line. There's a, a, a way that people say this. Have you ever heard this? Hurt people hurt people. And I did, I did a little deep dive on Google to try to figure out who the first person to say hurt people hurt people, but I just, it's just kind of common knowledge at this point. Hurt people hurt people. What we mean is that wounds fester. And then infection comes in. And then infection demands its own response. The splash ripples and it goes on and on. There's at least three types of wounds that we see in this story. And there's three types of wounds that all of us experience. The first one is the wound of betrayal. The wound of betrayal. Betrayal is the experience of being set up and violated and then discarded, Dan Allender says. It's being used by someone who violates our dignity and then is unmoved by our pain. Such betrayal, for whatever reasons, isolates us in loneliness and doubt and shame. Betrayal leads to a loss of faith, a loss of trust. It makes you unable to trust that person, sure. But then it un makes you unable to trust other people, too. And it makes you unable to trust God. Is God even trustworthy if he would let that happen? There's a betrayal that, that happens. There's also a powerlessness that's another type of wound, a powerlessness that we see here. If betrayal is connected to the loss of faith, powerlessness is connected to the loss of hope. Hope is this bold claim that the future is somehow going to be different than the past because of the goodness of God. But in powerlessness, we come to doubt the goodness of the future and the goodness of God. We lose hope. Betrayal, the loss of faith. Powerlessness, the loss of hope. And ambivalence and the loss of love. Ambivalence is where you feel torn in two. It, it's this divided sense of self. That on the one hand, you feel shame and self-hatred. How could I let this happen? On the other hand, you're also trying to kind of move on and experience and enjoy and just kind of live life. It causes the, this question of the sanity of giving and receiving. Is this even worth it? Gaslighting has become a popular phrase. I saw that uh, the old 1944 Gaslight movie is now on HBO Max. And Kelsey and I had a conversation about it recently. But if betrayal is the loss of faith and powerlessness is the loss of hope, ambivalence is the loss of love because you cannot present your full self to serve and to give and to receive because of the wounds that we've experienced. Sin... I, as many of you have heard me say, sin is like a seed that's planted. This is James chapter 1. And then that seed grows roots that dig in, and then that plant grows and it bears fruit. And then when it's full grown, it brings forth death. Sin is never an isolated event. A wound never stops with the event itself. It has an afterlife. Richard Rohr, he's kind of a Franciscan monk, kind of modern day version. He says, if we don't transform our pain, we will most assuredly transmit it. So what happens to our wounds? What happens to our pains? Just like in this story, hurt people hurt people. There's this generational impact. Mark Wollen, in his book, It Didn't Start With You, he says, sometimes pain submerges. It goes under the surface. 
It submerges until it can find a pathway for expression or resolution. That expression is often found in the generations that follow and can resurface as symptoms that are difficult to explain. Why is this happening to me? Why is this showing up in my family? And he says the answer may be because of a wound that happened even in the generation before you. Our wounds do not dissolve. They resurface later in what feels like fate or fortune and repeat cycles of our family's experiences. In other words, he says, we're likely to keep repeating our unconscious patterns until we bring them into the light of awareness. John Tyson, he's written a little excellent book on fatherhood. It's called The Intentional Father. And while it's just written to dads, I, I think it has a lot of valuable wisdom for moms as well. It's about fathers and sons, but he says, if we don't deal with our own baggage and our own hurt, if we don't walk into our wounds and discover what is really happening there, we will end up passing that on to someone else. For fathers, this holds true. If we don't transform the pain we experienced as sons, we will pass it on to our sons. Leslie Fields, she has a book on forgiving our fathers and mothers. (laughs) She says her prayers, forgive me, Father, for my father has sinned. So what happens to our wounds? What do we do with these? The way of wounding is where an experience then spills over and it it just festers, it spreads. So what is the way of healing? The way of healing, Uh, Dan Allender, he calls it the healing path in his book, the healing path. But he says, just picture a spectrum. He says, on the one hand of the spectrum is something like avoidance. Avoidance is where you really practice minimization. We saw that in the narrative, didn't we? Especially with Absalom. Be quiet. Don't take this thing to heart. There's an avoidance that can be really tempting. But freedom is not found in minimizing the wound. That's not where where healing comes in for wounds. Wounds will fester if they're not addressed. You can't avoid them and hope they get better. Freedom isn't found in acting like you have no wounds. We all live under the fall. Our world is full of wounds. Allender, he says, most of us make our inner worlds off limits to even our most intimate companions or our spouses because to open our heart is to reveal the confusion, the disgust, the arousal, and the shame within. Instead, we remain alone. Avoidance leads to a loneliness in a carrying the thing by yourself. Some of you are thinking, well, I'm not minimizing, but you know, I grew up in a pretty great home. I don't really recall any wounds, certainly not on the, the caliber of what we're reading about with Amnon and Tamar. So I'm not meaning to be avoidant, but you know, maybe this isn't me. I, I, I certainly sympathize and wounds can be different, but I would just urge you, instead of minimization and comparison, to just kind of acknowledge what wounds are there. Certainly there are some homes where parents are emotionally present and affirming and bonding and they do well with their children. But even in this environment, there may be gaps that remain. Remember those two categories of things that you deserved 
that you did not experience or things that you didn't deserve that you did experience. For some, the dysfunction can be so normalized that we're incapable of seeing it. On the other side of that spectrum is absorption, where it becomes consuming. Instead of minimizing, it just becomes everything. This is found in the vengeance of a man like Absalom. Freedom is not found in wounding in return through vengeance or plotting or ongoing resentment and bitterness. Freedom is not found in staying turned in on yourself. Miroslav Volf, I quoted him last week, but he says in his book, The End of Memory, to triumph fully, to triumph fully, evil needs two victories, not one. The first victory happens when an evil deed is perpetrated. The second victory, when evil is returned. After the first victory, evil will die if the second victory did not infuse it with new life. He says the way of vengeance is not the way of freedom. The way of self-absorption is not the way of freedom. There has to be a different way. And I believe that the Christian answer to this is something like spirit-led examination. It's not just a turning in on yourself. It's an inviting a good, loving, gentle God to help you see and then to help you find his healing and presence. Freedom is found in this, this healing path where you don't have to remain alone in it, where the, the God of truth, the God who is good, where he can step into those things with us, not only to help us light them up and see them, but to help us light them up and transform them. So it's this, this freedom is found in the healing path of inviting the Lord to join you. Uh, Allender, he says that healing, at least in this life, is not the resolution of our past. It is the use of our past to draw us into deeper relationship with God. He wants to step into that with us. The way of wounding is this isolating ripple effects that continue to give steal, kill, and destroy. But the way of healing is to step deeper into the life of God where he can join you in the pain, in the suffering. And I know if you're in the pain and in the suffering today, this is not a really good time to hear this message. The best time to hear the message about the companionship of God in, the, in times of suffering is when things are actually going okay. So if things are going okay for you right now, this may be a perfect opportunity to invite God to show you some of these wounds that you're carrying, some of the wounds that you're inheriting, and to stop the ripple effects into the next generation, into your own self, into your other relationships. It's the path of sufferers. It's the path of wounded people. This path allows us not to paper over the past, but to allow God to use the pain to draw us deeper into him. So what would it look like to draw, to invite God to really draw near into these places of pain? I really want to share just one practice, and it's a practice that our groups will be doing this month. Um, it, it has to do with the stories we tell ourselves. So I want to kind of explain. If you're not in one of our groups, there's some handouts on the Welcome Hub. You can just grab one, and you can do it on your own, or you can join one of our groups. But it's just this little exercise, and I just want to introduce it um, fairly quickly. Um, it has to do with the stories we tell ourselves, or what are sometimes called scripts. Um, the, the scripts and stories we tell ourselves are the, the things that happen to us that lead to internalized messages where we then assign a lot of meaning about ourselves to them. And his book, The Deeply Formed Life, Rich Villadas, 
He says these scripts are the messages we receive, the roles that we are given, and the ways we believe we must live that have been consciously handed to us or subconsciously interpreted by us. You'll go slower when you go through it with your group. Scripts like this, in other words, are like the narrator's voice in your life that tell you who you should be and how you have to live your life. Uh, Steve Cuss, he calls them the stories we tell ourselves. He says, the story you tell yourself is a subconscious, ever-present filter. It's like the mediator between you and the world, the one that gives you assignments in the world. He says, but the great challenge is that until you examine it, you don't even know it's there. And its power is strengthened by your unawareness of it. So if you don't know what your scripts and stories you tell yourself are, he says, then they probably have a deeper hold on you than you realize. The way to loosen the grip of this false narrator, what is often an inner critic, he says, actually to shine that light and expose it. Where do these things come from? Well, Villadas, he said, they're consciously handed to us or subconsciously interpreted by us. So it means that this is how we make sense. It looks something like this process where in a, a moment, an experience, a memory, we experience something that we didn't deserve or we didn't experience something that we did deserve. This, this wounding moment is then internalized in the form of a message. And the message is how we make sense of what that was and what that meant for us. And that message is repeated often enough and then it starts recurring in new moments that it, it begins in being internalized as a script and a story that we tell ourselves. This is just who I am. And then do you see the directions here? So what originates in moments and then is interpreted and assigned messages and meaning then starts operating back. And so then we start seeing everything through those stories that we have now filtered. Um, I hope I'm making sense. Um, let me illustrate uh, in, in just two ways. <clears throat> one is from Rich Villadas himself. He says one morning his parents in New York were having just a terrible argument. And they were just shouting at each other. He says, it got a little heated, and they started throwing things. At each other. It was like pillows at first. But then they kind of stood up to each other. And in response to somebody throwing something, I think one of, maybe his dad pushed his mom. And when he pushed his mom, and his mother fell backwards onto his six-month-old sister. He says, I've been watching from a distance, and when I saw my sister crying, I ran into the room, I picked her up, and I stood between my parents, weeping and begging them to stop. And in that moment, in that moment, something shifted in me. No script was consciously handed to me, but the internalized message of, I have to hold everything together, was lodged in my heart and in my mind. The script has marked my life. It has informed my decisions at home, my leadership at church, my self-understanding. I have often lived with a sense of being overly responsible, afraid of failure, excessively anxious in conflict, with the persistent feeling that I had to be a stable, unanxious person. No wonder I became a pastor, he says. It really resonates with me, and that says more about me than it does about you. I have a lot of moments uh, especially from my family of origin, that feel very similar to that. I remember the first time that we took my brother 
to a mental hospital to stay. And I remember just the confusion and the panic, really not knowing how to make sense of what he was doing in our family and to me and to my mom and dad, and feeling just totally powerless. And, and those moments, and there were many, many of them, internalized this message of something very similar to what Rich said. It's like, there's enough trouble, you just take care of you. There's, an, there's enough trouble with him, there's enough trouble with them, you just, and I internalized this story of a, a, just a demand for perfection. That in order for my family to survive, I couldn't be a burden on anyone. There's enough burdens in my family that I couldn't be one. And that message played out in so many ways. It is how I began seeing meaning in life. And like Rich says, it's no wonder I became a pastor. With this perfectionistic, judgmental, kind of self-proving streak. But the Lord has been doing something in me the last several years. And it started when he showed me these things. When I began to realize these moments had messages attached to them, those messages created meaning in my life. And those meanings were distortions and unhealthy ways of coping with the world and unhealthy ways of coping with people. They, they weren't actually true of who I was, certainly not who I am in Jesus Christ. I had to rediscover grace because there's no room for grace in a life that's lived in perfection. I had to allow and kind of lower down those thresholds of judgment against other people because of their failure to live up to my standards. Just the distance and the safe, the, that sense of control that I had. But what I have discovered is that God is good for sinners like me. And I've discovered in sitting with people through ministries like Freedom Prayer that God is good to sinners like all of us. He is so good. I've talked about the, the way of wounding. We all are, are hurt and wounded. Life is pain, Highness. In, in his book, The Wounded Healer, he says we're all wounded, Henry Nellie. Spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, physically, we're all wounded. But the Christian story is the story of a wounded healer. A wounded healer. Uh, Carl Jung, he kind of built this, this idea of a wounded healer. And he says a lot of the reasons that people help people is because they've been helped. They helped people help people. <laughs> uh, a lot of the reasons that people go into practices like psychology and therapy is because they have found that those things, that was exactly what they needed. Maybe they got it or maybe they didn't get it and they wanted to be that for somebody else. It's actually in our wounding that we become vessels of healing. And this is true personally, right? This is true for you in, in a real way that God can use your moments of wounding and the, your story of how you've made sense of yourself in the world. He can use that if, if you become aware of it for, 
just tremendous amounts of healing for other people, particularly for this next generation that some of us are raising up. But more than personally, he has done this cosmically. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you may follow in his steps. At the end of that section, he says, by his wounds, you have been healed. There was a, a campus minister. He was presenting on a big university campus in Australia. And he was presenting about Jesus, and he was trying to evangelize and really convert college students. And during the Q&A time, a Muslim student kind of stepped forward and in a very intelligent, articulate critique, he says, he went on to argue that this version of God was illogical because how could God, the, God, the cause of all causes, have pain inflicted on him by any lesser beings? That wouldn't be God. You'd cease to be God. It's self-defeating. This isn't really God. But the campus minister, he, he basically just said, you know, I think you're absolutely right. So he thanked him for making... Uh, thank the man for making the uniqueness of the Christian claim so clear, and it was this. What the Muslim denounces as blasphemy, the Christian holds precious, that God has wounds. There's one poet who says, the other gods were strong, but thou was weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. There's really only one way that a wounded world can find the healing that it deserves. And it is by the God of heaven coming into our world, by his wounds we have been healed. And in that healing, he sends us out as wounded healers, ambassadors of reconciliation, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Would you stand? I want to bless you and then send you out. Oh, Lord God, we praise your name in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who suffered for us, the one who suffers with us. We glorify him as heirs of God and fellow heirs with him. Our hope is unshaken, for we know that as you suffer in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. We rejoice insofar as we share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Lord, shine your light on our wounds, and with the balm of the blood of Jesus, grant us healing that we may become wounded healers for your cause. In Christ's name, amen.